Hey guys, Gary here. Before we get to the show today, I wanted to highlight our sponsor, Sports Engine. Sports Engine is dedicated to making the life of a youth sports volunteer easier. Through their applications, people are able to save time on administrative tasks, allowing them more time to focus on developing their athletes. More than a million teams, leagues, and clubs use Sports Engine every day to run their websites, promote their programs, and to collect signups. They also offer an easy solution for getting uniforms delivered directly to their athletes' homes. It's called Sports Engine Gear, and you can check it out at sportsengine.com forward slash gear to get started. Great. Now, on to our show. You're listening to On The Whistle, the podcast that explores the impact that coaches, teachers, and mentors from youth sports organizations and schools have on young people's lives. Here's our host and Squad Locker CEO, Gary Goldberg. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of On The Whistle. Uh, today, we have on our show Brad Faxon. Brad is, uh, as many of you will well know him, uh, very well thought of and accomplished professional golfer. Brad graduated Furman University uh, back when I was in high school, Brad, so I think you got a couple years on me. There he was a two-time All-American and winner of the Haskin Award. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the Haskin Award, it's kind of like the Heisman for golf. Uh, you know, other winners are Mickelson, Tiger Woods, uh, Justin Thomas, to name a few. I mean... This is a very uh, elite group of athletes. Brad is an eight-time winner on the PGA Tour, two-time Ryder Cup team player. Um, And Brad built his reputation as one of the best pure putters in golf history. In the year 2000, he set a single-season record with only 1.7 putts per green in regulation, which is a tremendous accomplishment. But the thing that I find most interesting and charming about Brad, aside from the fact that he's just a terribly nice guy, and a terrific guy to be with is he's done an enormous amount of charity work. He and his friend uh, Billy Andrade here in Rhode Island um, started a charitable foundation for children. They've raised over $7.2 million for children welfare um, here in the state of Rhode Island. And I know Brad's deeply committed to involvement in uh, veterans programs as well, people who have served our country. Uh, you may have seen Brad as a commentator on NBC or Fox News or Sirius uh, as well. And so, Brad, uh, it's so nice to have you, and I really appreciate you giving us some of your time today. Thanks, Gary, and thanks for the very nice uh, introduction. You're awesome. welcome. You've earned every one of those words. Um, so, Brad, I'd love to get started a little bit. You know, a lot of the people that we interact with at Squad Locker aren't typically golf coaches or golf mentors, right? Right. But I know that one, having spent time with you, you know, I know you're about mentorship and you're really about um, psychological focus and improvement. And the art of putting is really, and golf is such a mind game. But if you could turn the clock back a little for us, were you like holding a golf club at age three? And are there home videos of like you doing driving it like you see on Instagram with these little kids? Or did you pick it up more like teens? Like, how did you get started in golf? Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. Uh, back when I first started playing golf, uh, TV was black and white. Uh, I don't think we could record much on video. Uh, I grew up in a, 
in Barrington, Rhode Island, which was a, a very nice town to grow up in, a lot of families, uh, good public schools. Uh, and what really helped me was my dad was a golfer uh, from his childhood when his father introduced him to the game. And Rhode Island Country Club was the golf club in our town. And my, my parents were members in the mid 60s. I, I hit golf balls, you know, occasionally as a kid, you know, as a six, seven year old. But I also played other sports. I was very well rounded. I was lucky living in Rhode Island to have good instructional leagues, whether it was uh, baseball, you know, started playing baseball early. I played ice hockey. My father played college hockey. Um, so I, I got to ski. Uh, I, I was pretty well-rounded as a kid, and which I've found now uh, as an almost 60-year-old that it's really important growing up to have the ability to play a lot of different sports uh, for your, uh, you know, your physical and your mental growth and, and development, especially if you want to become a professional athlete. There are very few um now that specialize early specialize in in just one sport and can make it successfully i would say to anybody listening parents or kids uh you'll be much better off if you if you can do more than one thing growing up gary and so when did you figure out that you were good at this brad how did you know that you started to get good so i i would say i have to give so much credit to how i played this game to uh, where I grew up and how I grew up. My my parents got divorced early in my life and I was maybe eight or nine years old. And I think what really helped me about that was, you know, my dad still stayed very involved with me, um, but I was at Rhode Island Country Club as a 12 year old, as a caddy. I, I, I shined shoes in the locker room there. So I, I worked, uh, I had you know, a young work ethic on my bike for two and a half, three miles each day, uh, getting up there to caddy. Uh, but what I learned quickly there, Gary, were that there were successful people at the club as they would have to been to be members um, and that those people were people that were driven. And my role models were were people like Fred Bruno, who was the head professional at the club, who was a, you know, Vietnam vet, uh, Italian, grew up in the north side of Providence and got to work at quarter to five every morning, washed his own car every day, changed his clothes to look nice during the day. Uh, he was the last guy to leave every day, cleaned the range, uh, went into the, you know, into the weeds to pick out all the range balls, the errant shots from people. And he lived a life that I said, this is unbelievable. You know, without trying to be a mentor, I, I think our generation, Gary, and I'll put you in mind, um, you know, our mentors were not just who we saw on television, but they were the real life people, whether they were school teachers or the Fred Brunos of the world. So that I, I have to credit almost everything, my, the success I've had as a golfer in my life to being at that club virtually every single day um, as a young kid and a teenager. Yeah, it's interesting. Brad, so, you know, you, you went through high school and then you went to Furman to play golf at the collegiate level. What's it like to be on a golf team? And how is that different than like a ice hockey team or a football team or a baseball team? Because it's an individual sport, but you're on a team. How does that even work? Yeah. So I, I, that's a really good question. And something Gary, I'll back up a little bit because our high school, Barrington high school had a very good golf team. Uh, what was unusual about that is the coaches at Barrington high school were professors or teachers at the school that were getting paid a pittance to, to be the coaches. And our coach was a guy named Don McGregor, who was a four foot 11 guy that was both the wrestling and the golf coach. And he was, 
you know, a golf fan. He didn't know really much about the, uh, the intricacies of the game of golf, but he would drive us to the matches and uh, we would play and, um, it was a team sport, but it really wasn't right. It was how you played as an individual and you hoped that your, your other guys could play well and beat the guys they were playing against. And, um, I, I learned quickly that you had to figure a lot of this stuff out by yourself, uh, without really having a, a proper coach at Barrington high school. I, I, I jumped into the same situation at Furman when I was getting better as a high school player and getting recruited by a few of the colleges. I didn't really have major colleges and major college coaches knocking on my door in Rhode Island. They were like, huh? So ironically, the guy that was my freshman coach, Willie Miller was just hired that summer. The the previous coach had gotten fired. Um, I went down to South Carolina to a small school, knowing that that would be a good place for me to be able to play competitively against the best teams. And, and I just figured, you know what, if I could at least get on a team against play against the best competition, that was going to be my best chance for success because if I had gone to let's call it Wake Forest or George or North Carolina, the better golf teams in the Southeast, I might not have made those teams or played golf. So I made a good choice, but there was certainly a lot of luck in that too. Yeah. Interesting. And then Brad, how does it work in terms of like um, getting the coaching technique about golf? Because, you know, I'm not a, I'm not even a hack golfer. I mean, I play six rounds a year if I play that much. And, you know, there's so much lesson available and so much learning available, so much more so than what I see in other sports, particularly for adults. I mean, it's it's overwhelming. But I got to imagine you figured out along the way how to get things to work better for yourself. So how do you back learn that? The, right. Uh, Gary, back in the mid-'70s, early eighties, you know, when I was high school and starting college, you know, golf was still the most taught sport. Really. You could go to a club and get a lesson. You could look at any of the golf rags, golf magazine, golf digest and and get a lesson. Uh, there were books, handfuls of books written now on uh, today's world. You can go on YouTube and look up any part about the golf swing from any instructor in the world. And you'll find an answer. And it's very confusing, but I think for me having a dad that had played, and and got me on a golf course. It was learned by imitation. You know, you watched players that were better than you. Uh, It was certainly the things that I heard are the same things you would have heard, you know, keep your head down keep your left arm straight and follow through. Right. Uh, And that the simplicity of the game of golf was shoot the lowest score. And my coach didn't care whether you did that by hitting it crooked and being a great chipper and putter, which is kind of the way I became or learned uh, versus a guy that would hit down the, middle very boringly and hit it on the green and two putt and we'd both make pars in different ways. Hey, whatever you shot, the score was low. Now uh, with all the data and stats out there, um, you you can find different ways to make uh, the game work and it can be very confusing and confounding to players. But I I think if you looked at golf, tennis and skiing, those are probably the most overtaught or instructed or analyzed sports in the world. And I think having no cell phones to, to do all this stuff and learn that way really helped me. And like I said before, Fred Bruno would have been a guy that every once in a while he would have run by while I was hitting some golf balls and say, Hey, try this or that. But I never had a formal lesson in my life until I got to college. Um, when I met back then a guy named David Ledbetter, who was a, a Rhodesian um, instructor that had come to the U S to Florida. And my first 
golf lesson really formally was from him when I was 18 years old. And did it help? Did it change your swing? Did he, did he make well, you better? It, it, it actually helped to organize some and give me some structure uh, to, to what I needed to do and what I could do. Um, and it, it was really about fundamentals. I had read enough books to know that players like Jack Nicholas before me, who was kind of like my idol because he was the best player in the world when I was watching golf on TV, you could keep this simple and still demonstrate um, and, and play well. Uh, right now, I think the, the hardest thing for the top players, even the top players in the world, uh, is there's so much information out there that it's very tempting when you don't play well to, to look online or to send your swing to an instructor and show them what you're doing. And social media, you know, you everybody can look up what everybody else is doing. I, I think players sometimes might be way better off putting their phone uh, in the hotel room for the whole week. You know, um, psychology plays a huge role in the game of golf. And it, my sense is that really high-performing athletes get to a place either positively or negatively psychologically about their game. And it sounds to me like some golfers, you know, to use a phrase, get in their own head. Yeah. And it can degrade the quality of their swing or the quality of their performance. And I can imagine in golf, you know, you're all alone, right? So, like, if a play goes bad and you're on an O-line, well, was it really your block or was it somebody's who missed the block? It kind of gets confusing. But if you miss five putts in a row or you hook a ball and then you get to the tee again and, you, oh, my God, am I going to hook it again? So what tips and techniques have you developed, you know, to alleviate that internal anxiety or internal performance pressure to keep the clarity. I read one thing that you said, and I don't know if it's a direct quote, but how did you become such a great golfer? I established such confidence that I approached every putt as if I had already made it. Something like that, you said. So talk to me about the psychology of your playing capabilities and like, how did you weed out all the noise, man? It's crazy. Well, it is crazy. And you're getting right in my wheelhouse here, Gary. Uh, I, I love the psychology of sport. And one of my mentors growing up was a guy named Wally Uline. Wally was a salesman at the Christian company, which owned Titleist and Footjoy. He worked his way up to become president CEO. Now he's chairman of the board. Wally was like my big brother. He was a member at Rhode Island Country Club. And, and he introduced me when I was a teenager uh, to some positive thinking tapes that were um, um somebody named Earl Nightingale or Dennis Waitley. These were guys, uh, James Allen books um, on how to think and, and how you can create a better mindset um, so that you can, you know, be stronger, whether as a person or, or as a, an athlete, as a golfer. And it was, was, and still is apparent to me that you, you can walk down a range at a PGA tour an LPGA tour event and watch all these players hit the ball and they all look, pretty similar. You know, they can all hit it pretty good. They can all hit a high shot, a low shot, a shot curves where they want it to go. Uh, and what separates them, um, was their mindset, their attitude. Um, and, and there's pressure on all sorts of players. Well, you know, it was amazing to me that the guys that I looked at that had the best swings, they sometimes felt more pressure because they were supposed to play great because their swing looked so good and they hit the ball so well. And there was, other players like Tom Kite or Tom Watson that 
sprayed the ball around earlier in their career, but they could learn to chip and putt. And, and I, I quickly learned that if you wanted to be a good golfer, you better have a great attitude. And that translated really into everything that I did in my life. And, you know, we always talk, you know, golf is, is a game like life. And I'm sure other athletes say their sport is like life. And, um, that really helped me as, as a player developing when I was 22 and got on the PGA tour from Rhode Island. And I'm looking at, you know, Greg Norman or Seve Ballesteros or Jack Nicholas hitting balls next to me. I was, it was pretty intimidating. Um, and then I quickly made it a goal. Hey, if, if I want to continue to try and be the best player I can be and, and compete, I better play with these guys and I better ask them a lot of questions. I better spend a lot of time. And it wasn't just, having to ask a question was kind of watching what would their approaches like, you know? So if you have people that work for you or if you're trying to get better in your business as everybody is, uh, I'm sure you've done a lot of the same things. Like I want to see what makes somebody successful in their business and their company. Um, Simple things. What time do you get up? What time do you go to sleep? What do you eat? You know, nutrition was a, 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 something early on in my career that we really didn't know enough about uh, working out. Um, you know, and you talk about my putting average, my stroke average being 1.707, um, with all the data and analysts out there, I know that if I can improve putting by tenths of a percentage, that's going to equate to huge jumps in world ranking and ultimately money lists and, um, in winning tournaments. Brad, you said that your approach to the psychology or your psychological approach to the game, you had the same approach in your life. How did those two, how did it spill over hanging around you? I get a sense that you have a wonderful belief in gratitude. Having, you know, hung out with you and, and when we talk about things, you know, you're always leaning towards the edge of positivity and you're looking for good things. And I know you use your free time to spend and lifting people up. Does that make you a more successful golfer or does the discipline in the golf create the gratitude that allowed you to be the person you are? How do those two things work together? Cause I think a lot of young people growing up, it's hard, right? I mean, it's hard to get good at something and that just takes time and determination and a little luck, right? And then things don't break your way for whatever reason. But then like, how do you keep the positive sensibility to you? Is it go back to the tapes you listen to and just stick into the mantras? Uh, how do you string all this together? It's a fantastic question. Um, I think the youth of today, the young kids, when they jump out of college, they want to hit uh, the first pitch fastball for a home run. Um, I sometimes think they don't want to put in the hours a question I would get all the time is how do you become good at putting? And, and I, you know, everybody wants something I can put on the jar and put it at, on a shelf at CVS. So if you can just open it and you're going to be great. And, I, and the un- unfortunate answer for those people is it's really time. It's time. It's, it's a little bit of skill and it's a little bit of, you know, how you think mentally, but there was a, a player uh, I met in 1984 who was from Rhodesia and worked with David Ledbetter. His name was Dennis Watson. And Dennis Watson seemed to be like an or- ordinary professional golfer to me. He, he didn't seem to be exemplary or outstanding. And then all of a sudden he won four tournaments and he worked with a, a sports psychologist at the university of Virginia named Bob Rotella. 
Uh, I immediately called Rotella my second year where I was really struggling in that sophomore slump. And, and Rotella has become a, a, a huge um, influence in my life um, from those early days. And one of the things Rotella did, he, he was a, a student at the University of uh, Connecticut, and he taught some um, handicapped or physically challenged kids swimming lessons. And he was a football player and a lacrosse player. And he volunteered with a few other the top players to teach these kids to swim uh, Saturday mornings in a pool. And oftentimes at that pool, it was cold. And he said it was incredible how the difference, he said, between the kids on his teams, you know, the football teams that were most of the time uh, more well-off or good-looking, physically gifted, uh, and they would often be in the mirrors looking like, why is my nose big or why do I have, you know, that pimple here or why isn't my muscle, why aren't my muscles strong? And then he said when these kids showed up that were certainly um, had something that they could complain about, um, he said when these kids showed up or when we showed up to give them lessons, they would give us applause. And they had one thing in their life going for them great, and that was the fact that they had free swimming lessons, and they chose to think about that. So Rotella kind of gave me the belief that, hey, when you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, you got a choice, and it's your choice. It's nobody else's. Um, are you going to like what you see or not like what you see? And I, I've never forgotten that from that day on, that every morning, I mean, I think we all have a, a sink and a, a mirror to look at. Um, how are you going to make today a better day? How are you going to help somebody else? And how are you going to help yourself and your family? And I've kept that mantra as an integral part of my life, whether it's playing the game, being a father, being a husband, um, or maybe being a mentor. I'm doing a lot of coaching now to, to other players and, and, and all the charitable work. And I just love that because a lot of people, they want to think that all the things that's handed to them, uh, they didn't have any choice. That's the way it was. And maybe it's not, but it's how you respond to the adversity is what's really makes a champion the best. Right. You, you say you're doing some coaching now, and I know you're coaching some, you know, some real professionals and some guys who are really competitive. Are you a better coach or are you a better player? What do you think you're better at? <laughs> um, I, I'm learning so much now trying to, to do this coaching part of the game. I always, as a player, like to talk to other players about whether it was the technical parts of the swing or the putting stroke, uh, how you think. And I listened. I always shared those opinions with other people. And um, I've liked trying to help some of the top players in the world and to be able to, to talk to someone like Rory McIlroy. I've been with the last three years, or even some players like Gary Woodland who won the U S open two years ago, Justin Thomas, who's a top five player in the world, um, helping them at the times is unbelievably rewarding, but Gary, because you're a, I was great at putting doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be a great coach at putting. I know, you know, you think about, think about Michael Jordan, right? Was he a great, basketball coach was Wayne Gretzky, a, ba a great hockey coach was Jack Nicholas. You know, he had five kids, four sons. Was he necessarily a great golf coach? They just, they were so gifted and so good at what they do. I think sometimes they have a hard time understanding what other people go through. And, uh, you know, I went through times in my career where I never thought I'd find a golf ball again, uh, the way I hit it and, and how badly I played. So I think the struggles helped me 
to understand that. And look, I'm, I'm just a little blip on a radar screen now as, as a coach, but I, I know that I putted well for a long time. I got better at the game and that part of the game as I got older, which people would n- normally think that you'd fizzle out as you get older, that part of the game would be harder to acquire and you're just born with it. And if that's the mindset somebody's going to have, I'm just born with it. They're done. I was on your Instagram last night preparing for today, and there's a really cute little video of you and your wife, Dory. And for full disclosure, Dory and I are kind of like brother and sister. I've known her my whole life, and her brother's my closest friend, and, you know, we kind of grew up together. But I guess Dory was going to do some caddying for you at the L.A. um, Challenge, and she's trying, you know, putting the bag on, getting ready to in the garage that you're in right now. And uh, you ask her a question. She says, oh, no, we're going straight down the fairway, honey, or else I don't caddy, which I thought was awesome because she's busted on you, right? But here's my question for you. You don't – no other sport has this other person that plays with you but doesn't play, right? It's like professional golfers have caddies. Well, you have a coach on the sideline, but the caddy's not your coach – but they're carrying your equipment with you, but there's got to be this really interesting relationship between what the caddy says and when the caddy speaks and when the caddy knows to, ooh, that didn't go well, and I, I want to support my player, but I don't want to say the wrong thing because I don't want to get in their head. Like, what a weird dynamic. So how did you, how'd you build relationships with your caddies? And, like, what for people that don't know what that's like at a professional level, what's it like? Yeah, you're on the golf course by yourself with one person is the only person that you can really – get advice from. And that's one of the rules of golf and, and caddies have to have a multitude of of capabilities, right? They're not only are they carrying 50 or 60 pounds around six or seven or eight miles. uh, They're a a sports psychologist. They, they can be a coach. A a few of the top players, Jason day and in particular had their caddy coach caddy for them. Uh, They have to be your friend. They have to be a motivator. Uh, They have to be, good at what they do. Uh, they have to have some intangibles, which are hard, hard to describe it, knowing when to talk and when not to talk. Uh, and, and I met my first caddy, longest caddy in 1986. I had played a couple of years on the tour, um, just by happen chance. Uh, uh, I was going up to play in the Canadian open in Toronto. Um, a, a friend of mine who was going to play in the tournament had to withdraw and left his caddy standing there by himself. And I didn't have one that week and we just hooked up. And then 14 years later, uh, we had one of the longest relationships um, out on tour along with Phil Mickelson and Freddie Couples and their caddies. So I think you have to, you have to obviously like each other. Uh, You have to have respect for each other. I mean, there are players that when that flag goes up and the lights on uh, and the race starts, they turn into different animals. I've, I've never seen, um, in a sport, how a player can change so much and go from being seemingly nice and kind of calm, maybe placid or something, all of a sudden they're crazy. Um, So I've done a lot of things to my caddy that personally could have really ticked them off um, under the battle in the heat. And, you know, you just kind of wash that under the rug at sometimes, but caddies are really important. I, I don't know if I can think of, something in another sport that's even like it because when you're when i'm not playing well as a player i can't just play defense that day right i have to still hit every shot i have to find the lost balls and and get out of there where 
you know, and on the football team, you got 21 other guys on your team or 11, 10 other guys on your side. And the same true with basketball and baseball. It, it's really, really can be lonely sometimes. You know, there's a great story online about um, your relationship with our president, uh, George uh, Walker. It's George H. Bush, excuse me. Yes. Um, the father. It's a really, really cool story. It, it, it intertwines your grandfather was getting an award. Uh, President Bush was getting an award at the same place. Uh, and you presented uh, a gift to the president. Um, and it built a, a really interesting relationship that went on for quite some time. And you're quoted as saying it was the honor of my life, this relationship with uh, you know, President Bush. Why was that the honor of your life? What, what is it about that that sparked such an emotional connection or remarkable feeling for you? I mean, it's cool just to know a president, to have a president of the United States as a social connection, you know, like a golf buddy and all that. I mean, that's just really, really cool. And by the way, if you haven't read the story and you're listening to this, Google Brad Faxon, George Bush, you know, story or whatever. I forgot what it, whatever I let, read it, but it, it's really cool. Brad almost, he tied the course record and a putt lipped out. It's just a really cool story. Uh, but what is it about that that got you so much? I mean, I know you're kind of a, a patriot at heart. And I, I know you love this country because we've talked a little bit about military service and how much admiration you have for those that serve and those that sacrifice. But what was it about this that, that sparked you? Well, there's so many ways I can go with this. First of all, you mentioned my um, my grandfather. Um, he was the president of Fall River Gas Company. And I don't even know if you know this. I'm sure you do. But my grandfather uh, ran Fall River Gas for a while um, in the mid-60s, 50s, 60s. And he was Duro's biggest customer. Um, and he was friendly with Dory's uh, grandfather. And probably, probably my grandfather. Your, yeah. Your grandfather yeah. as well. So I, I like that little history of our families together. Yeah, cool. Um, and my grandfather was served in the army. He was in World War II. Uh, my father was, um, he went to a military school in Norwich Academy. So I had tremendous respect for the military. And, and we were taught you know, old school rules, uh, respect your elders, uh, you know, look everybody in the eye when you shake their hand, say their name, say their last name. Uh, and my, you know, in Massachusetts was pretty liberal state. My father, grandfather was a self-made guy that was conservative with his values. And he, and he grew up that way. And you honored the office of the president, which I know right now is not something that people are, they don't believe in these old school values anymore, which is sad to me, but it's also, everything's been so much more polarizing, but back to the Bushes. Um, I first met president Bush in the early nineties. I was playing in the, what was used to be the Bing Crosby term at the AT&T, which just happened last, last week where amateurs would play with the pros and, and president Bush had played with Hale Irwin. And I had played with my dad and my dad and I made the cut. And we got paired the next day with Hale Irwin, but President Bush, his team didn't make the cut, but they, he and Barbara came out to watch. And this was in 1993, right after they had lost the election uh, to Clinton. Um, but President Barbara Bush came out on the course and walked with us inside the ropes for about six or seven holes. So that's when I first met Bush. Um, he came to a couple of the Ryder Cup teams um, 
matches where we are in 95 and 97, which is cool. He was a huge golf fan. His, his father started the Walker cup, uh, back in 1927 at Worcester country club and thus the name George Herbert Walker Bush. So we, we knew each other, but it wasn't until later. And I think this was 2003, the, the Francis, we met society, which was a, a caddy society organization in Massachusetts, which was one of the largest ones in the country. They had their annual dinner and they were honoring Bush, who was the first non golfer to get this award. And, my grandfather was going to speak because he had given a, um, a large amount to the we met scholarship fund. And we had a big table with all the faxons there. And um, I had a custom made Scotty Cameron putter made for president Bush. And I, I presented it to him that evening and it was very funny and rewarding because he, he was a notoriously bad putter and he had a collection of them. And I knew this thing would never be used, but he was very generous, Gary. And um, he said to me, it was kind of funny. He said, um, hey, would you and your wife, Dory, like to come up to Kenny Bunkport and spend a night? And I'm like, sure. And he goes, good, I'll have my people reach out to your people. And I'm like, I don't have any people. How's he going <laughs> to find me? And I had, you know, one of those caller ID block. There's no way. So we had a great night left. And the next day, it was back in the Nokia phone days, you know, the, where you had to press the number three times to send a text. And, um, I get a call and it says caller ID block. And I, I'm not even thinking I'm walking down the street somewhere. And a woman's voice said, uh, hold for the president of the United States. And you immediately think this is a joke. And I'm like, yeah, right. Who's this? And he goes, hi, Brad, George Bush. It wasn't president, but he just said, hi, Brad. And he, the unmistakable voice of sure. Uh, number 41. And I was like, Oh my God. And I said, hi, Mr. President. And he said, Hey, Brad, um, Barbara and I would like to see if you'd come up to Walker's point on June, he named two days in June and without even looking at the calendar, you know, it could have been the U S open. I said, yes. And, um, we, um, we go driving up there and it's not a far ride from Barrington, you know, two and a half hour ride. We're extremely nervous. And when you go through the gates, they had secret service and a compound out there of all these little cottages. And it was really quaint, but dramatic right on the point. Uh, with ocean and rocks. And um, we drove up to the circle. I still can't believe this has happened to me, but I see the picture of us every day in my office and uh, out comes president Bush in a, in a pair of khakis and a flannel shirt. Looks so New England topsiders. He grabs our luggage out of the back and says, welcome. Um, you can stay in, in George and Barbara's room. And this was incredible that, you know, we're staying at his son's room in the main house. He's taken us up to the room. And I think we, we went up there 13 of the last 14 years um, and, and got to know them extremely well spent. Uh, I don't know, days there with other golfers and other celebrities. Phil Mickelson was there. Justin Leonard was there with their families, the Gatlin brothers. Um, I don't, I don't know how you could ask for anything better, but as, as, as George W. Bush said about his father, he said he was the most decent man I know and maybe the most qualified man ever to be president. Brad, tell, tell our listeners what it's like to work as hard as you worked and put in all the time and, and win something like a professional golf tournament. What is that feeling like? I was thinking about 
what we might talk about today. I, I was in my doctor's office. I get these uh, nutritional IVs every couple of weeks just because I think it's good for you. And, um, with COVID and everything, just have the ability to fight off any kind of disease. And uh, I'm sitting there thinking, what, what possibly could I talk about? I was thinking about being introduced to the game and at no point really in my life did I ever think about this as work. Um, and even when I think about, I'm going out to coach a kid this afternoon, I've never met a South African named Eric Van Royen who's on the tour and top hundred player in the world that's struggling with his putting. And um, these people try and make golf a job. You know, they want to work six to eight hours a day and it's a real organized or structured practice. And, and I never felt like I had to do this. I always wanted to go out there. I, I never did it because financially it was going to be rewarding. I just thought, I love this game so much. I love to compete. Um, I'm outside um, in control of what happens really by myself. And if I don't do well today, I can do it again tomorrow. Um, I, not many people get that opportunity in their lives um, or have the success. And I think about, look, could I have done better with my golf career wise? Could I have been a better player? I said, certainly, you know, knowing what I know now, I, I could have changed a few things, but I'm also, I feel like I was an overachiever too. And that, I think that's a compliment. You know, I, I think if you had said, Hey, here, here's a kid coming out of Rhode Island, uh, didn't have all the opportunities in the world that everybody might have. Um, and haven't been doing this, you know, played professionally over 35 years, uh, played on international teams, both as an amateur and as professional. I mean, I'm so proud of it. Um, and I wish I could have done better. So I, I love the game, but I never thought about this as work. And I don't think that's an easy thing to have happen in somebody's, somebody's life, but I still try to wake up every day with a, you know, the ability to keep doing things that I enjoy doing um, to support my family, to support myself, really, to reward myself. And, and I, I don't know, I just, it's hard to just tell somebody, just go ch chase your dreams when they don't have the opportunity to do some of this cool stuff. Uh, Gary, so I feel lucky. I feel blessed. Um, you know, I met so many great people. I mean, and you know, we didn't know each other growing up, but I think our friendship's gotten deeper, not just because of Dora and her family, because I think we've been able to have really abstract conversations and a lot of different topics. And I appreciate now people that are driven, that have taken a business like you have that was small and what you weren't sure where it was going. And now it's like, holy smokes, you've done unbelievable with that opportunity. So um, I think there's always hope for somebody, but you got to really look for it in some places. Brad, I appreciate that compliment. Uh we have one question that we ask on this show, and it's a little bit of a zinger. Let's see how you do with it. I might need a drink of water for this. Take a drink of water. Prepare for this one. So you've played a lot of golf. You've been in a lot of tournaments, a lot of competitions. What do you think you've gained more from, the wins or the losses? It's easy to ask, answer the question about what's your favorite win or um, what meant the most to you. Um, but you've had, I've had tremendous hurt. Um, I'll give you two specific examples. And I, I think they both made me better as a golfer and, and better as a, a human being. Um, in 1996, I was playing in the Hawaiian open and I lost in a playoff to Jim Furyk. Um, I think it was on the third extra hole. And it was a day I played on that Sunday where I had nothing going right. I couldn't hit a shot where I wanted 
I, I made a 70 foot putt for an Eagle on the last hole in front of thousands and thousands of people. Uh, it was a once in a lifetime putt. Um, and then unfortunately lost the playoff. He had some good fortune in the playoff. And I was the last guy in the locker room to, to clear my, uh, golf bag out. Uh, and you know, there was a locker room attendant really probably had no idea who I was. He was just kind of waiting for his, his tip, his gratuity. And there was a TV on, um, we were in Hawaii and ESPN was just showing the highlights of the Daytona 500. Um, and I got my caddy and I see the locker room guy trying to usher me out there so he can go home. It's dark. I had to go through the press interviews, you know, after losing the playoffs. So I wasn't in a very good mood, but I was also like, you know, I, I was, proud of myself for hanging on, um, in that situation, making that putt and trying to console myself, really talking to my caddy. And when I said to the locker room guy, I said, who won the Daytona 500? I didn't realize there was a sports illustrated reporter hanging around the corner. His name was Alan Shipnook and he was a new young kid. And he wrote an article the next week in sports illustrated and said, if you want to win a golf tournament, just get in the playoffs with Brad Faxon because he cares more about race car driving than he does about golf. Wow. And I thought, thought that was one of the most unfair things I've ever seen written. And not just because it was me, but I'm like, first of all, I didn't know he was there. He didn't come up and say anything. Um, and he wrote that and it got written. Uh, and I, I got mad at Sports Illustrated. I was a huge fan of SI as a kid, you know, as a subscriber back in the mid seventies. And sure. I, I called this guy and, and Ben Crenshaw uh, came to my defense and said, this is the worst thing he's ever seen. And um, we, he, the reporter ended up coming to my house in Barrington and then trying to do a makeup, which never really materialized, but that one, that one hurt the most. Um, and then in the 1995 Ryder cup, which was in Rochester, New York at Oak Hill, I was in a singles match on the final day and it was really close that the team event was tied or within a half a point, almost the whole day. And my match uh, against really an unheralded English man named David Guilford came down to the last hole. And, and I was tied with this match where if I won the match, if I won the last hole, we had a real good chance to win the Ryder cup. I didn't know all that at the time. I knew it was close and how important this hole was. And he had hit his second shot way over the green, which was jail. And, and I didn't hit a good iron shot. I hit it into a bunker. I hit a bunker shot to about eight feet. So I had a par putt from eight feet and this guy was making a mess of the hole and ended up making about an 18, 20 foot putt for a bogey. Um, where now if I make my eight foot putt for the par, we win the hole. I win a point and it gives us an edge at the time. Well, I missed this putt. Um, we have the match. I got a half a point instead of a point. So it was a half point difference. And I remember the golf professional there who was a very well-known professional named Craig Harmon of Harmon fame. Um, he came up to me afterwards and in, in the locker room and said that I, I wish I could have run out onto that green because every time players read that putt, they think it's going to break to the left, you know, and, and I wanted to tell you don't play as much break. And I missed it on the high side. Like he thought I would. Um, if I were going to miss and, you know, it made me feel better, but what it made me think about was, look, you can, you control a lot of things in your life and in golf, you can control, you know, how you think your, your pre-shot routine, but once that ball leaves the club head or the putter face, you don't really have a lot of control. And, and that's, what's the beauty about golf. We, we call it rub of the green, uh, where, where, you know, you could 
have it take a bad bounce. The wind can blow. Well, I think I did everything I could that I could control that time and it missed and it hurt. You know, that was devastating because we did lose the walk or the Ryder cup by half a point and other players that were well-known, more well-known than me, Curtis Strange, uh, Jay Haas came down the last hole and all lost their match or their hole. And it was gutting. But I, I, I learned from that because look, I did what I could do to control it. And one of the things I'm going to tell this kid, Eric Van Royen today, when, when he comes out, cause I know he's a real structured guy is, can you be satisfied hitting a great putt or hitting a great shot that doesn't end up great? And a lot of times they say no. And that acceptance part of our game of golf, and really there's acceptance and response and reactiveness to everything we do in our lives. But the way people respond is really a, a determination factor to me on how well they can do in the lifetime in anything they do. Brad, thanks so much for joining us today. If people want to listen to more of what you have to say or watch some of your videos, how do we find you? Where should we be looking for you? Uh, there's a, a couple ways I, I can do that. I'm on um, social media on Instagram. It's B Faxon. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Brad Faxon. I don't know why they're different. Um, I have a YouTube channel now for golf. I do twice a week. I'm on the radio on PGA Tour radio. So you'd have to have a Sirius or, uh, or XM account. But I'm doing a show every uh, Tuesday morning at 830, a segment with Michael Breed. And then I do one every Friday at seven 30 with Taylor Zarzar called Fridays with facts. And we're talking about golf uh, and, and all different topics, uh, really the hot topic of the week or the day. So um, it's, you did your homework. You did a lot of stuff, Gary. Um, I'll help if I can circulate whatever you do here with on the whistle. Uh, let's do that too. And, and hopefully you come down to Florida and get out of the snow for a little bit. I will. And, and say hi to Dorian. Thanks so much for joining us today, Brad. It's always a pleasure and, and so great to hear your stories and to learn from your successes and some of your failures. Very valuable. Very valuable. Thanks, Brad. On the Whistle is powered by Squad Locker. Squad Locker is your one-stop shop for customized team apparel delivered right to your front door. To learn more, visit squadlocker.com.